Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 80 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius Dean Ayers, and I'm joined as ever by Tazone sports journalist Liam Happ. Hello, Liam. How are you doing today? <laughs> How am I doing? So, um, my, my four-year-old daughter's school uh, had a COVID case this morning. And I don't know how quite you have it this morning, but, you know, you'd think they'd have twigged onto it a little bit more alertly. But right bang in the middle of the day, it's ended up with four of the seven, eight years that attend um, being sent home. So it was, it was easy getting back because there was hardly anyone there. But you know where this is going, Dean, don't you? Where's this there, going? Well, well there, there is... How many more days is my daughter's car, which is reception? How many more days is it going to be before they're like, well, we're going to have to send all them home as well? Because for one case to knock out like, four, four years worth of, of students, uh, I, won't, I, I won't get too deep into it, but it's... Oh, it's an absolute nightmare at the minute, and I think uh, while I'll be working, I'll, I'll have a, a kid around my ankles again so very soon. Daddy homeschool? Yeah, while trying to work. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, oh, I'm looking forward to it. You can tell by my sarca- sarcastic tone of voice and my inability to say basic words. What possible distraction could a bored four-year-old girl have on a man trying to earn a living? Ah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we are we are back. We are back in the uh, realms of uh, podcasting. Had a little had a little bit of a scare because um, I may I dropped my laptop and it stopped working, and one of the hinges kind of fell off, and the fan stopped working, and uh, took it to a, a local chap who uh, fixes these things. Unfortunately, it was just a matter of putting a new hinge on it and bending some bits of the fan back because. We haven't had the greatest of luck with our laptops at the tail end of any calendar year, uh, but fortunately, um, it was it was just a a cosmetic problem, and obviously nothing to do with the staggering volume of pornography that you allege goes through this laptop. Liam. I allege. I am not. I am not a court of law. I am not like a criminal record that is permanently attached to your profile. So don't pin this on me. This is this is all up in the in the records now, mate. Yeah, and uh, I was I was just I was just going to jump to your defence actually and say that you were acquitted of forty-seven of the fifty-five charges. Absolutely, yes, indeed. And I I will take that record to the grave. And uh, also had uh, had uh, good results today from my my annual diabetic review that uh, I seem to be the only person in the world who's got healthier during lockdown. Was that that home or away? Uh, That was home. So I was going to say it would be a good three points on the road. 
yeah, yeah, but <laughs> but uh, no, all all, uh, all is going well. It's the only time the the only time I ever know where you uh, you go into uh, a room and you present someone with a cup of your your own piss and they say thank you. The only time. Oh, you and well, I have different uh, circles. Yeah, I was going to say unless unless of course uh, you go on some of those websites that apparently crashed my laptop. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, we've got our, get ourselves a guest. We've got a guest. We've got a pay-per-view review. It's it's a golden age for podcasting, Liam. Golden age. Golden age. Bless the lockdown. I am very pleased to welcome first-time guest to uh, Because WCW. He is a writer and a wrestling historian based in Scotland. Hello and welcome to Because WCW to Bradley Craig. Hello, guys. A pleasure to be here. And thanks for inviting me to the show. It's an absolute pleasure. We've been uh, wanting to get you on for uh, for quite a while ever since. Um, well, there's we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. There is a, a connection that you have uh, with uh, a former guest uh, of ours, but we have we have listeners from from all around the world, seventy different countries, and of course, Liam, parts unknown, uh, big strong following there. Um, so, for those people who who may not be too familiar with you. Uh, what, what's uh, what's your story? What's your background? And what do you do in the wonderful, wacky world of wrestling? Okay, so apart from being an architect by trade, I am a professional wrestling historian, which you alluded to earlier on. My main focus in that field is that I founded in 2015 the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame for Scotland. Oh, wow. So every year we have an induction ceremony and honour one of the greats of professional wrestling in the country of Scotland. Um, at one point, I did flirt with the idea of that being a UK-wide thing, but that was just too great uh, a task for one person to manage and coordinate. So mm-hmm. effectively, the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame for Scotland is my key focus uh, in terms of as a historian, but as a professional wrestling writer, uh, I'm involved in contributing articles for The Ear, which is the official publication of the Cauliflower Alley Club, as well as some freelance work uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. And you made mention of the fact that I have a link to one of the previous guests. I've been a ghostwriter as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's something that um, I'm keen to do again and look back into the the era which drew me into pro wrestling as a fan and the uh, the guest of course is was the person that we had for, way back in our episode number 59 Jeannie Clark better known in WCW circles as as Lady Blossom and so you so when when uh, what, what does the the process as you say ghost writing what does that entail Basically, it's just a case of being on the phone to said talent all of the time, draining that person's memory until they're absolutely sick of hearing from you. (laughs) And then writing down as much as you possibly can, sending it back, getting told that it's not right. And then, (laughs) (laughs) but also at the same time, going through absolutely every single meticulous, you know, meticulously going through every single item of research that you possibly can whether it's archive newspapers press cuttings re- results that you've uh, exhausted you know annoyed people to get yeah out of them um it's just such an exhausting process but it, it's important to do it correctly because otherwise you end up with a book that you're not proud of in every single time you 
produce something like a book you want you know that it's not like a magazine where it might be a disposable item a book's there to stay so you know nobody will it's it's a different process than writing an article for a magazine which you know kind of gets superseded on a monthly basis a book is there to stay and so are the mistakes in said publications so um it's it's, it's quite a long exhausting process Okay, so just go back to what you were talking about the the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame for for Scotland. So, mm-hmm. um, what what names that people around the world would recognise? What names are, are um, in that Hall of Fame at the moment? Okay, so the first in, inductee to that Hall of Fame was actually someone that's currently on the ballot for the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, who is George Kidd. Mm-hmm. George Kidd being the kind of father figure of the chain mat wrestling style that the likes of Johnny Saint and more recently Zack Sabre Jr. and Marty Skrull and, a, a, you know, all all sorts of talent have employed since then. But George Kidd was really the, the great name from the history of Scottish wrestling back in the 40s, right through to the early 70s. Uh, so he was the first inductee. The other, uh, the other inductees include some really weird and wacky characters, a, a gentleman called... Uh, grizzly Andy Robin, who famously, oh, yes. yeah, famously adopted a bear, taught it how to wrestle. But before that um, career, he was a very respectable wrestler, not only in Scotland, but in Canada. Other uh, talent includes the likes of Chick Cullen, who was one of the great um, junior heavyweight style stars from the 70s, early 80s, uh, right through into the, the 90s before crossing the Atlantic again, working for Stampede. And other names include Bill Ross, uh, an amateur great who turned pro, and Drew McDonald. Oh, uh, lovely. Lovely. Uh, well, yes, I, I work very closely with Drew McDonald. Just, just the greatest bloke. Lovely, lovely man. That's right. If I if I recall, you called one of his shows that that was on Bravo. Uh, yes, I was right, the revival show. Yes, I was commentator for that. Yep, yeah, he was. Um, yeah, as you say, on on revive revival, which was two thousand and two. It was. Um, yeah, it was a, an eight man tournament. Um, that uh, was won by Jody Fleisch, but also had a tremendous match between um, Doug Williams and Eddie Guerrero, which I think mm-hmm. is the only time they've ever, ever fought each other. Um, but yeah, D- um, Drew McDonald was um, in the FWA as part of the, the old school, the new school storyline. And I was, um, I was manager of the old school and yeah, some tremendous memories with, uh, with Drew, such a great, great guy and, and terribly missed to the, still to this day. One of the reasons I was keen to honor his career was because to me he was one of the talents that really created a, a link between a, an industry that had effectively fallen on its backside and helped revive the industry and made it accessible for a new generation to in, in the millennium. So that was that was why because he was a real champion in in pulling together the, the the remnants of an industry and and almost making it accessible for a new age of talent so mm. that was his lasting legacy i think more than his in-ring contributions yeah i mean i i think that the fact that that he and robbie brookside came over to work for the fwa to do that storyline really gave the fwa an air of legitimacy and that was one of the things that really helped push push that promotion you know up above the parapet definitely 
Mm -hmm. And how many guys in their second year of the business can say that they did a an FA Cup final match? You know, <laughs> which that <laughs> yeah. was in terms of you know, when when you used to look at the, the the glory days of the world of sport era, that was the big date to be booked was the FA Cup final yeah. week. You know, and and Drew did that I think in his second year in the business in a match with uh, where he tagged with Big Daddy. Yes, always seemed miscast as a as a blue eye because of the sheer size of him, but he soon found uh, found his form as a as an, an excellent villain. And and as as is so often the case, the best villains in the ring are the nicest people in real life, and he was an absolute gentleman. Fantastic. And and of course he was someone who did have a couple of matches for WCW when they came over here to uh, tour in the UK. I think he I, I seem to remember he had. Uh, a match on worldwide against Buff Bagwell. That's right. Um, yeah, so uh, a man who had a connection with WCW as well. Um, so what what is your link um, with uh, with this promotion? Where, where does where does WCW fit into your wrestling life? Okay, so although if I, if if, um, if I'm thinking back to the time that took me from being a wrestling fan to a wrestling super fan to the point that I wanted to pursue some kind of um, profession within the business. It was WCW and the the broadcasts every week on ITV and my regional uh, ITV franchisee, which was Grampian. That mm-hmm. was the product that really captured my imagination in pro wrestling. Although I had first seen pro wrestling during the the, the latter days of World of Sport and the lunchtime wrestling that was on every Saturday just after St. and Greavesy or before St. and Greavesy, it would be um, the WCW slot that really captured my imagination as a wrestling fan. I was just absolutely taken by the the kind of high impact, faster paced style, which and and also I was a child of the 80s. So all of the the things that I was that I was raised on were these muscle-bound guys like He-Man or Rambo and Commando right. <laughs> and all these these kind of roided up figures who had a score to settle and wanted justice. And to me, pro wrestling, especially WCW and the WF, they gave you the option of having the movie style payoff of a great fight with these larger-than-life figures, but without having to suffer through 90 minutes of plot development. I mean, when, you, <laughs> when, when you're a kid and you want to see Rocky for you don't want to watch all the scenes where Adrian's telling Rocky that he can't win. You just want to see him <laughs> fight the Russian. You don't yes. want to suffer through plot. You know, to heck with that. So that was what appealed to, to me as a fan with American wrestling. It was just these larger than life guys that looked like movie stars beating each other senseless. And I loved it. And was it WCW because WWF in the UK was, was on sky on satellite TV and, and WCW was on free TV, free to air television. Or, it was, or was it a choice that you preferred one to the other? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, at first, I, di- I didn't have satellite uh, television. Uh, so I I remember when I used to religiously go through all the TV times and the t- what's on TV magazines and almost memorize the listings. I was a bit of a TV addict when I was a, a young child. And I remember on one of the magazines, they described 
something that was the superstars of the WWF and I was intrigued because I thought I didn't realize that the WWF had a, a weekly um, a weekly presence on ITV and although I'd seen the WWF fleetingly in 1987 on ITV mm. um, during its rotation with during the the afternoon uh, rotation of World of Sport joint uh, with I, th- I think the WWF had a a, a small rotation with uh, All Star promotions yeah. and joint. Yeah, I mean it was. I seem yeah for for those the listeners that are either overseas or too young to remember this. Yeah, it was. Um, we had a, a weekly Saturday afternoon wrestling show, an hour long, and I I think I mean it was all it, it used to be a monopoly of of joint promotions, mm-hmm. and then it became I think from 1986 or 1987. Pro, um, no, 1987, as you say, because that was the first WWF one. It was, I think it was something like two or three weeks of joint promotions, one week of All-Star, a week of WWF, either once a month or once every other month. It wasn't very often, though, was it? No. But no. Um, but the, the bulk of it was still joint promotions, the old school promotion. All-Star was a bit more of a modern British one, and obviously the WWF was the WWF. Yes. And I just remember the WWF, had an actual merchandising presence in the UK before it even had a television presence. I remember going into Woolworths and buying those uh, awful thumb wrestlers where you'd stick your thumb into some wrestler's <laughs> yeah. backside and basically fight with your friend. You know, you'd end up with two bro- with a broken thumb um, because one of your friends couldn't take defeat. And <laughs> <laughs> so that... So it's amazing that I can even draw, never mind draw well, but it's, it, you know, um, that's, a, that's an, another factor. But I remember the WF had a merchandising presence and I think in er, late 1989, early 1990, I saw a newspaper listing or a, a TV Times listing that described a show that was on in the middle of the night called the Superstars of the WF. And because a few of my friends that had satellite television, they were watching all these bouts with Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior. I really wanted to, to, to see that. But when I taped it and I watched it the following day, it wasn't the WAF at all. It was this other thing that I'd never heard of called WCW. Ah, OK. So there was a misprint in the, the local listings because they just assumed all American wrestling's the same. Yeah. And... The, the, the truth is that in the early 90s, we actually had, when I say we, the British public actually had access to so much American wrestling if you were to subscribe to cable or whatever. I mean, I, th- I think in the early 90s, the UK had access to the LPWA at some point. We had Glow, we had access to world class and to various territories, depending on where you lived and what coverage you you had and if you had cable or satellite your your options seemed to be endless but i had an affinity from day one wcw from i think the first time i saw it was in january 1990 and it was on what was grampian television that was the northeast franchisee of itv and it was part of this slot of television programs called Nighttime, which aired in several uh, regions. Oh, yes. And, yeah. Yep. And I just I, I used to love the programming that was on during the nighttime slot because it would be different things that appealed to my age group. Sometimes you would have episodes of the Adam West Batman. 
and occasionally you would have things like America's Top Ten, which was ah oh, yes, a show Casey, hosted by Casey, Casey Kasem. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. And American Gladiators and all these other shows that just as a young ten-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy, I just I loved it. I loved American television. Uh, there was just something about American television that just I absolutely loved, and it just always seemed so much more glamorous and accessible than some of the British television at the time you know I mean I think I think growing up around action movies and that I just I dreamt of programs from America because they just seem to be more action-packed you know things like Baywatch and shows like Airwolf, Knight Rider, The A-Team it was all centered on action and WCW was just the perfect for me it was like the, the, the peak of action in the 1980s. I mean, we've always said, Liam, haven't we, on this podcast, as 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 much as we will we will take the Mickey and and criticise where criticism is due. At the end of the day, we both absolutely love WCW when it was around much more than than WWF. Mm-hmm. This is true, and that is why we are entitled to rag on it whenever we feel like. It. <laughs> Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to. Because WCW. Now choke on that. So, um, Bradley, what pay-per-view have you chosen to review today and why? Well, I just thought that because we are in the midst of just, um, you know, we've just went through the absolute joy as a nation of Scotland in qualifying for the uh, Euros for the first time in about 20 years, I thought, wouldn't it be great to let's think about teamwork with in terms of uh, sporting achievement and let's rewind to a pay-per-view that was really focused on tag teams it was the probably the last time i really saw tag teams being the key focus of any american pay-per-view and also i thought that this is a pay-per-view that appeals to almost nobody so if i don't take it on who else is going (laughs) to that's that's an interesting way of looking at things so um yeah so um what and so we are talking about the Great American Bash, 1992. So let's go back to July the 12th, 1992. We are in Albany, Georgia, at the Civic Center for the eighth annual Great American Bash. Um, the main focus of the uh, the introductory segment is uh, the NWA World Tag Championship Tournament where every team bar two are listed as representing the USA, including Ricky Steamboat and Nikita Koloff and Brian Pillman and Jushin Liger. The Japanese team of Akira Nagami and Hiroshi Hase are just called the team representing Japan, because, of course, why would they bother to learn how to pronounce their names? And the other team listed as representing Japan are the duo of Steve Williams and Terry Gordy, who are both American. However, they are billed as coming now from Nagoya, Japan. So interestingly, they'd never officially been recognized NWA World Tag Team Champions before this point. Um, various NWA territories recognized their own tag champions. Some of them, those champs were called world champions. But unlike the singles title, there was never been previous to this one globally recognized duo as the world tag team champions. So um, there had already been a first round. Um, and we've, we've talked on previous shows about 
uh, reviewing Clash of the Champions events. And this one happened at Clash of the Champions 19 um, with the the first round, as I said, and that featured teams supposedly representing other countries around the world, including uh, the American Malenko brothers representing that great country of Europe. Um, but the uh, the Clash also saw the mainstream debut of Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit and the Headhunters. Oh, no, wait a minute. Not those headhunters, two perennial WCW jobbers under masks saying that they're from the Dominican Republic. Um, not sure if there's a, the, the actual headhunters who were meant to come along to that and, and uh, didn't show up or, or what. But that's another story for another day, I guess. Um, so our hosts are Tony Schiavone and Magnum TA. Um, and we see uh, a clip of the sole quarterfinal match, which had already taken place on free television, bizarrely enough, um, which was on that Clash broadcast where um, Steve Williams and Terry Gordy beat the Steiner brothers cleanly. So basically the marquee match of the whole tournament has been given away in the quarterfinals and on free TV. We're also told that that Akira Nagami has suffered an eye injury and he'll be replaced by the, uh, well, the, the later on he'd become uh, an NWA world champion himself in Shinya Hashimoto. Um, we then go to our commentators, Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura, who do their introduction. We then throw to Eric Bischoff, who's with President Bill Watts, to explain the rules of the tournament, which is basically that the stupid WCW rules that uh, Watts had implemented about no moves off the top rope are not in effect for the tournament. And by this point, I'm just thinking, can we please just get on with some fucking wrestling? So here we go. It's match number one. It's a quarterfinal in the tag team tournament as the team of Brian Pillman and Jushin Liger take on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Nikita Koloff. And ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta announces that Koloff is formerly from Lithuania, but he's now residing in the United States, which explains uh, why they're billed from the US. We start with all four men shaking hands and Ventura notes that Pillman and Liger will be allowed to use the top rope offense, which will be to their advantage. So uh, Koloff and Pillman start off. They emphasize the size and strength advantage of Koloff and the speed advantage of Pillman. The lighter men are making tags. They're keeping Steamboat out of the match. Steamboat finally gets tagged in after about six minutes or so to a big pop. Um, Steamboat and Pillman would, of course, cross swords the following year when uh, the Hollywood Blondes and the team of Steamboat and Shane Douglas would fight over the WCW World Tag Titles. Um, Liger gets a two-count with a moonsault, followed by another two-count after a tombstone pile driver. His momentum is halted with a belly-to-back suplex from Steamboat, who tags out to Koloff, who comes in with heavy strikes. Steamboat later takes a spectacular bump off of a, a Pillman backdrop. Uh, Koloff's then back in against Liger using his size and strength again. He signals for the Russian sickle, which prompts Pillman to jump in and attack him from behind. Pillman then avoids being thrown over the top, counters with a springboard clothesline and a high elevation top rope drop kick. Steamboat comes in to prevent the pin, so Pillman drop kicks him out of the ring as the crowd are going absolutely crazy. Lots of high pitched screams clearly audible, which happens throughout this pay per view. Uh, but the delay works and Pillman just gets a two count on Koloff um, the end comes in 19 minutes and 26 seconds when Pillman comes off the top with a cross body block but his momentum allows Steamboat to roll through into a pinning position of his own they go forwards to the semi-finals to meet Williams and Gordy Bradley what do you think of this one well I almost think that if you watch this out of the whole tag team tournament 
this is almost the strongest match. So we've peaked and it's almost time to go home, <laughs> you know. But I, I loved this match. I loved how Koloff was really generous in the way that he sold for the, the two junior heavyweights. I thought that what was really interesting is that you, you mentioned that Steamboat would end up facing Brian Pillman in there in his much uh, lauded feud between Steamboat and Douglas and Hollywood Blondes, but also Steamboat and Pillman would face each other several times that year. I think that they had a match with each other, uh, Steamboat and Pil Pillman. They would face it off at Halloween Havoc and potentially also at Starcade 92, I think. They would, oh, they would be on opposite yes. sides again there. So it was almost like they were constantly running, running partners. But I loved this match. I loved how Koloff would sell in a credible way. If you were to imagine a guy the size of Koloff, I mean, he always, I always think of Bill Goldberg. And I always think how, yeah. Bill, Goldberg, how Bill Goldberg is almost incapable of selling for someone the size of say Dolph Ziggler and here was Koloff absolutely giving us all in terms of putting on a performance against the likes of Jushin Liger who's vastly undersized compared to him mm, yeah so I, I absolutely I thought that the way that Koloff sold was credible um I really liked the, the the kind of blind tags that the the two gen, uh, junior heavyweights were doing this and and I loved the the, the overarching hope spots between both tag teams it, it was quite refreshing because the match was almost clean in terms of there's two well-defined babyface teams and it, it just seemed like a really nice exhibition of pro wrestling that wasn't based on the typical face heel dynamic yeah and in 1992 that was quite a revolutionary concept especially if you were to compare to the world wrestling federation at the time and i think that's part of um the bill watts ethic would you say liam that, that it, this is about legitimate competition for a title as opposed to good guys and bad guys not just that but also i, I read prior to this that this was around the time that Jim Ross was able to oust Dusty Rhodes as the main booker of the matches uh, obviously we had Bill Watts coming in in the big role overseeing everything to pay and things like that and he was really cutting the costs down and yeah. he, he would have had a, a, a say in the overall direction but he was always very close with Jim Ross and Jim Ross was the main booker match to match and it's no coincidence that suddenly we're going to, you know, no silly finishes, no extracurricular activities. Everything's very authentic and sports-like, almost to a fault, because, you know, you, you, the, the answer's usually in the middle. With wrestling, you do want a, a little bit, in moderation, you want that hijinks. And, you know, you think of our, our talks on the Nitro watch-alongs. We, we couldn't live without the the ridiculous cheating of people like Ric Flair and woman. You know? yes. We we live for that stuff in the product as well. So this is at the other end of the extreme from, say, Vince Russo, where everything needs five extra things tacked on and ridiculous stuff. Or even Dusty Rhodes, who, you know, who brought us a dusty finish. But just to piggyback on that, that good point about Koloff, I, I loved watching his facials and his body language and, and how much focus and determination he was clearly having in making sure he got this right i i really thought you know that you know when someone's really 
aware of of how hard they need to work to do something you see that extra that that look on their face and he had that here he was really determined to make this work he maybe felt a little bit you know, with three super high octane workers in there, whereas Koloff himself is, you know, he's, he's never been terrible, but he's definitely a class beneath those three as far as pure ring work goes. And he, he may, you could tell from the look of his face and the way he was carrying himself that not only was he stepping things up, but he, it was playing on his mind. So I found that to be a fascinating little thing. As far as Art of the Opener goes, which is always something we we talk about not only was this a very good opening match to fit all those criteria we discussed in previous episodes, but as you touched upon, Dean, there was so much talking at the beginning of this, and we've moaned about it in the past. WCW tended to do this far too often in various different eras. It wasn't even just down to a Bill Watts or an Eric Bischoff. They did this a lot. Uh, they would start off the show, you'd get the cheers of the crowd, you know, they're pumped, the opening pyro or whatever has gone off, the, the, the pay-per-view is officially on, and then they just cut to segments for about 15 minutes, and then they bring out the opening <laughs> match. And this is one of the worst examples of that, including Bill Watts, who would go on to prove himself to be the 1992 pro wrestling answer to Eddie Hearn. I think I've made that comparison a couple of times for other people, but yeah, Eddie Hearn is that modern day player. If you watch any current boxing on Sky, he makes sure he's in almost every shot and he participates in every boxer interview and it gets a bit over the top. He's, uh, yeah. Dana White really shoves his mug into UFC a lot as well. Uh, and Bill Watts, he's, he's giving them both a run for their money. So uh, for them to for, for them to pull it back after that ridiculous gap is another testament yeah. to how good this match is. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're absolutely spot on, Bradley, when you said yeah this was the best match of the the tag match of the night. I mean it it kind of started slowly and basically, but then it did what exactly what you want. It just built and built and built, and that last five minutes were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, what I really loved was the fact that, to me, the the participants involved had a lot to overcome. And what I mean by that is that when people see Pillman and Liger together in 1992, they want them to be on opposite sides of the corners. You know, yeah. They don't want them to be tag t- a tag team. They want to see them go at it because they just had the, the outstanding series in early 92 over the light heavyweight title. The other thing is that Koloff and Steamboat had their own exciting programs at the time. Koloff was embroiled in a very memorable feud with uh, Rick Rude over the US title. Yep. And Steamboat had just begun this really exciting, fresh program with Cactus Jack, which had kicked off at Beach Blast. But here they were being torn out of this fresh, exciting pro, pro- these these programs, and then being thrust into this tournament where there's no personal uh you know axe to grind there was yeah. there was there was no, there were no stakes other than the fact that they were pursuing the nwa gold what was really interesting about the nwa titles being introduced at this point in time is that the bill watts had already removed or deactivated the united states title because he thought there were too many tag team titles in wcw so he just removed the the United States title 
the United States tag team title, sorry, from activation after it being won by the exciting duo of the Barbarian and Dick Slater. Dick Slater, yes. <laughs> but, but the reason being that there's too many titles, and here we are introducing not only one title, but two titles. We're going to have the NWA tag team title, which is going to be won at this event, and then further down the line, the, the the heavyweight title for the National Wrestling Alliance, which we can touch upon later. Yep. You know. Well, to so, be to be perfectly honest, uh, if there still was United States Tag Team titles at this point, Bill Watts would have just fucking put them on Williams and Gordy as well, anyway. <laughs> because that was his business model at this stage. It was it was pretty much just have them win absolutely everything. And we've already covered Havoc 92 a couple of years ago. We had MMA journeys. Oh, God, don't remind me. Yeah, I'm reminded. There's going to be a lot of references because, you know, it's advertised heavily during this show then. But um, when we covered that a couple of years ago, um, this was at a stage where I think they they were finally realising that (laughs) heavily promoting Williams and Gouldy as like the top guys was not going to move the needle at all. So they were finally starting to walk back on that. But right now we are in the thick of it. We really are. But you know, what's interesting is that we, um, we, we were covering just two episodes ago or three episodes ago, number 77, we uh, covered Halloween Havoc 90 with uh, RJ Singh. And that really was the absolute peak of tag team competition in WCW. And we, we mentioned about how good a tag team division it was. We, we compared it to AEW in modern times. And, and one thing that was mentioned by RJ there was that the the US tag team titles were there. And, and at this time, the US tag team titles were held by the Steiner brothers of all people. So really high quality. And you had just such a depth of, of a tag team division. Whereas as you, as you've just pointed out, Bradley, the, the, the champions of the, the US tag champions of this time with this makeshift and not particularly exciting team of Dick Slater and the barbarian, which doesn't really <laughs> compare to the Steiner brothers. Just unbelievable the downfall um, regarding, <laughs> regarding the United States tag team. Yeah, in, in less than two years. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, we'll we'll move on. Eric Bischoff is backstage with the Steiners, who we've just mentioned, um, who are here as spectators rather than competitors for once. Um, Scott Steiner barks an interview about people who've lost and bounced back. Um, they mentioned that the Steiners were also the IWGP tag title. Tag, start again. They were also the IWGP tag team champions at this time. So I've got absolutely no idea how they were able to drop the WCW tag titles to Williams and Gordy, seeing as they were all Japan wrestlers. But that's the joys of Japanese politics. Um, so match number two is the team of Shinya Hashimoto and Hiroshi Hase against the fabulous Freebirds, and this one has got style clash written all over it um and i'm a bit worried about this because as we just mentioned halloween havoc 92 we know how japanese wrestlers tend to underperform on wcw pay-per-views um commenting on the hashimoto's size ventura comments you can tell he likes his rice and then proceeds to tell us how they eat fish heads in japan liam it was a different time wasn't it it was. You know what? When I was listening to his commentary, especially as this match started, I thought to myself, right, you've got 
you've got redneck Americans against Japanese wrestlers with Jesse Ventura and commentary. I am going to count the car industry references he made. Um, I don't think he actually made any, but he made up for it with a fish head r- rambling. Yeah, yeah. Um, the crowd are pretty much silent for this one um, as Hase and Hashimoto are in charge for the entire opening portion of the match. Um, even after a double team goes wrong for the Japanese team and they accidentally collide, Hase still cuts off, cuts off Hayes with a knee to the stomach to maintain their offense. Um, Hayes finally makes the tag to Garvin after he drops them both with two of his famous left hands. Garvin is then on fire, dropping both men with clotheslines and body slams. Hase then catches Garvin with a Northern Lights suplex while Hashimoto blocks Hayes from making the save to win a very one-sided match in 9 minutes 16 seconds. What did you make of this one, Bradley? Well, I mean, I was actually, when I was watching this match, I was actually getting flashbacks to the 1990s when I would watch. You're going you're gonna to probably disagree with me on this, but I, I remembered watching the UWFI when it was broadcast under the name Bushido. Mm-hmm. And you would occasionally see guys like JT Southern make an appearance where they would have these real terrible matches that were just absolutely awful style clashes with some fantastic Japanese talent. Yeah. And and that's what this, this match reminded me on. Um, I remember thinking at the time that I first saw this, 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 this match ever, it was when I bought the first independent video of Great American Bash. And this was around the time that the wrestling magazines were really starting to push Shinya Hashimoto as one of the most fantastic, exciting performers. This was the first time I'd seen him. And to me, I just saw him as basically a Japanese equivalent of, of Greg, Greg Valentine. In this context, in this context, this isn't, this is way before that I saw his exciting bouts in the UWFI versus new Japan series. And before all of these um, before us, I would see him later on in Eurosport when they would show the, I don't know if anyone remembers, the World Superstars of Wrestling, which yes, was a indeed. Japan show that would be on every week. Yeah, with, uh, I think, was it Gordon Soley commentating on that? Gordon Soley and uh, Oliver Humperdinck and Craig DeGeorge and all those guys. It was a, a rotating commentary team. But that was, that's what this reminded me on. It just reminded me on this weird styles clash of American wrestlers and Japanese wrestlers where it just did not work. And I just wanted this match to be over as soon as it started because this this match just seemed to be so slow. It was almost like trainee wrestlers doing drills on mat work spots. It was just so plodding. It was unreal. You know, it was... It was almost like if anyone has seen a Christopher Nolan film where he really manipulates time, that's what this was. This was a manipulation of time where you felt that you were traveling at a rate faster than the rest of the world and you were watching something in slow motion. I'll tell you who would have loved this match, George Hackenschmidt, because it was at the pace that would have suited him. It was Headlock City. You know, Strangler Lewis would have said that these guys were working too slow. That's that's the kind of match that that we were watching right here, unbelievable. But it did have a Northern Lights suplex, so it, it you know it gets a quarter of a star from myself. <laughs> Executed properly with the arm trap, not enough people. Yes, do that. 
most people just do like a it's like a reverse waist look throw isn't it which is mm -hmm. you know it's effective i suppose if you're going if you're going to do a quick one where you you catch someone charging at you and you snap them over yeah fair enough just do the waist lock but yeah if you're going to execute it with a bridge and expect it to be a near fall or a finish that arm trap is it's, it's a understated thing of beauty uh, as far as I'm concerned, this match, any time you get a match like this where it's literally just there to further a different plot point, in this case to put someone else into a semi-final of a tournament that's going to drag all show long and to also just get some guys on, on the pay-per-view, i.e. the Freebirds, who are literally just here to, to put a charismatic, well-known act on the show. If you're going to just do a match for those two purposes, or one of the two purposes, A, I think you should run the match a lot shorter, and B, you should forget about point A and just not do the fucking match. <laughs> yeah. It's, do you know what, though? I, I, can, I can actually imagine that... I mean, bear in mind, you know, you can... You are in control of this tournament. You can match up whoever you want to match up, politics aside. And I've just got this mental image in my head of, of Bill Watts in his office doing a legitimate draw, drawing these two teams together and then just going, nope, nope, we're having these. as This is, this is what the draw said and, and refusing to devolve, to devolve from that plot. Yeah, you think about football and other sports, Dean. When we say, "Oh, yeah, that was a that was a boring football match at nil nil," or that that was a dull boxing fight and not many punches thrown, you think, well, you know, there's a, there's a certain element of risk to that. The, these participants are trying to win; they don't really care about the in, entertainment factor first and foremost. Mm. One of those beautiful things about professional wrestling is when you get shows or matches like this. These people are choosing to be boring. With money on the line and, and their job being sports entertainment, they are choosing boring, and that is mind-blowing. This match could have been totally avoided had the Mexican team progressed to the next stage, and they could have potentially put on a nice little exhibition of Jap Lucha. That would have been fantastic. The Silver King team, had they progressed to the pay-per-view, it could have been something that was a lot less painful than this even then a lot of the obstacles might still be there yeah i mean unless mm. this is a particular pairing of two teams who have worked together in the past or or have certain ways of working around it we've we've seen these things fail as well you know the language barriers can still be a problem there are there are certain wrestlers that can work around that whether it's because uh, an american or a mexican has worked extensively in uh, Japan, do you think of guys like Samoa Joe? He, he's conversational in Japanese at this stage. Um, and some some wrestlers just know how to work. They, they can completely break the language barrier. But otherwise, yeah. you're, you're probably looking at a clash here regardless. And this could have been... We, we've seen like Wrestle War and Beach Blast. You've got so many guys on the full-time roster who could have had a great old match in the mid card of this of, of this show underneath Sting Vader and they went this fucking route. Yeah. I mean even even if you swapped this match and the next match around, you could have had Hasein Hashimoto against Rick Rude and Steve Austin and, and Rude obviously is very experienced in wrestling in Japan. And then you'd have had Rhodes and Wyndham against the Freebirds, which even sure that's a coin flip been... thing. 
<laughs> rude versus Japanese wrestlers is a coin flip. Well, yeah, as we saw in 92. <laughs> that's a very good point. Okay, well, we're back uh, after this match. Again, we have another segment before the next match. And Bill Watts is back again. This time he is with uh, Hiro Matsuda representing New Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, as Bradley touched upon earlier, they announced the NWA World Championship Tournament taking place next month in Tokyo. Um, Watts then states his intention to have a match between the winner of this tournament and the WCW World Champion to unify the titles and, of course, therefore make the entire tournament pretty much pointless. Well done, Bill. And yet they still took, what, two years to actually unify the belts? Yeah, with was it the uh, the NWA World Title, then it was the uh, International Title, and literally called it the Big Gold Belt for a short period yeah. of time. Um, yeah. And also on this segment and all these sort of segments, Dean, what what is it you always say about live events having these these shows of admin? It's always the, been a yeah, it's always been a pet peeve of yours, hasn't it? Oh, what when when they do they do admin during the live show? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's they could they could just you know just have it as a, a little you know flash up on the screen or something. You know, it's like people people wouldn't want to listen to us talking about what guests we're lining up and what who you know or have you spoken to so and so yet? Oh yeah, he can do the twenty sixth but not the twenty seventh. People don't want that. That's admin on air. Absolutely. Right, let's move on. Match number three. Rick Rude and Steve Austin with Medusa against Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham. So the winners of this match will go on to face Hase and Hashimoto in the semifinals. Um, miraculously, the All Japan team of Williams and Gordy have avoided being drawn with the New Japan team of Hase and Hashimoto because they're on the other side of the bracket. Oh, um, so I know what the chances, eh? Um, These two teams are very familiar with each other, having feuded extensively in WCW during late 91 into 1992, uh, including what we uh, we maintain on Because WCW is the best War Games match of all time at WrestleWar 92, which we covered all the way back in episode four of this podcast. So Rude is the current United States champion, while Austin is the world television champion. But will their respective singles success transfer to tag team wrestling? So Ventura is unhappy about Wyndham's taped right fist, which Austin sells big early on in the match. Uh, Rhodes and Rude get tagged in. The babyfaces continue to dominate the early stages of the match. Rhodes reverses a tombstone attempt by Rude and gets a two-count after Austin makes the save. Rhodes then goes for a splash, but Rude brings his knees up to counter him. However, each time the heels try to get on the offense, Rhodes counters and keeps the momentum in the Texan team's favor, or as Jesse keeps calling them, the Texicans. Um, Rude later nails Wyndham with a pile drive, which leads to Rhodes making the save. The heels then dominate Wyndham for several minutes and prevent him from making a tag out to Rhodes while tagging in and out themselves. Rude takes an inverted atomic drop, sells it like only he can. I don't think, is, is there still that Twitter account that's dedicated entirely to clips of Rick Rude selling atomic drops? I can't remember what it was called now. I think that's what the Twitter account was called. <laughs> it might be Rick, um, Rick Rude sells, I think. Rick Rude sells, that was it, yes. At Rick Rude sells. Um... 
So yes, Wyndham falls backwards, finally tags out to Rhodes, who cleans house on both opponents, much to the crowd's delight. Less than a minute later, Austin tries to pile-drive Wyndham. The camera inexplicably cuts to a double-screen feature to show Rhodes climbing the top from two different angles, and he clotheslines Austin from the top rope to get the pinfall victory in 19 minutes, 15 seconds. Uh, Medusa then throws her shoes at Wyndham and Rhodes as the Dangerous Alliance continues to crumble. Bradley, did you enjoy this one? I actually really liked this match. But then this was almost a flashback to some of the great matches that we had in the spring and summer of 1992 with Dustin and Rude facing in the finals of the Super Nintendo tournament and Wyndham and Austin having their great feud for the TV title. What was really fun about this match that not a lot of people will realize was that this was the first match that Austin had held the WCW world television title that wasn't the NWA title in, in full view of the camera because between, uh, I think April and July, Austin had actually been using a six-man title because they'd lost the rights to the NWA world television title. So oh, yeah. they'd been using a, a six-man title out of view where he'd just been holding the strap in a way yeah. that wasn't visible to the camera because they'd lost the rights. And this was the first time that they'd actually had the belt ready to be shown on camera. So that was like a little neat piece of trivia for, uh, for, for wrestling geeks everywhere. What I loved about this match was... It was the first time that I'd really see the top rope being used by the heels as a way of getting heat. I mean, you saw throughout the match guys coming off the top rope for the clothesline, such as Austin, and Rude nailing, uh, I think it was Rhodes or Wyndham, with an absolutely amazing missile dropkick, which was just, it, it never gets old when I see Rude nail a top rope missile dropkick. So, I just loved all of the exchanges in this match. It was it was like a really solid TV main event from that era, I thought. Liam? Yeah, uh, there's no complaints from me as far as whether or not this match was past foul, for instance. But the, the, the concern I had watching this was that you could tell, especially when we've watched the body of these fours work, especially against each other uh, throughout the course of the last like nine months, uh, you could tell watching this match that it was the, the already successful, already proven round peg was being wedged into the square hole of the new uh, mandate of how these matches should all be super sporting. And, 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 that, and that template's really starting to, with three matches in, and the template's really starting to stick out above the actual work, you know. And we've got a lot more of this to come. Uh, obviously, these are guys who can do it better than most of the other guys, which is, which is fair enough. But knowing the history between them, you think of the, the tag matches um, that have been on other those there in 1992 shows we've covered and and the matches we've seen on worldwide there was always more they they did such a good job of playing in their feuds and their history and their animosity and here there was a lot less of that uh there was a lot of times where you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was a completely cold pairing of two teams like there was no animosity between them whatsoever and we know that's not the case so 
yeah, it, it, there, there was that clash between the, the 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 way things were going backstage and the way they're trying to set up the structure of matches and what fans were already seeing and what they what you have embedded in your head as far as the characters and the histories go, which is a shame. But yeah, you you if you watch this match cold, you're gonna enjoy it. And even if you're a casual fan. These guys are going to entertain you. So it's compared to the match before, it's got that going for it. Yeah. One and... one thing that jumped into my head when you were mentioning about the the fact that Watts unveiled the NWA title, which had just returned from champion Ric Flair, was that this was almost part two of an NWA tournament trilogy, right? Because you have the clash as being part one. This is almost part two, and then part three being the G1 Climax, which would be in August. And when you think of trilogies, normally your most exciting, most enthralling part is the middle act. But that was not the case with the Great American Bash. No, I mean, I I remember that clash, and that was, for me, that was far more interesting just because of the... um... The, the new wrestlers that I'd not seen before from around the world. I, I don't, I didn't see the, uh, the G1 tournament, but um, no, I know, I know what you mean. I also know what you mean that this, this matchup itself was the kind of thing that you would see at three o'clock in the morning when staying up for WCW worldwide, albeit it would normally on TV have, you know, a run in disqualification and ending as opposed to a clean finish that you get here on the pay-per-view. So um, yeah, definitely um, good era of, of good good memories. But yeah, I, I was just looking up about the, um, the the television title, and it's it's yeah. Now now you mention it, I, I do remember. You know, again in this era of worldwide on ITV, that yes, yeah, stunning Steve Austin with Lady Blossom, and he would come out to that what I would call spangly twinkly music of, of his at the time. Um, and, and that robe, and yeah, he'd be holding that that red NWA World Television title. Um, even though, just looking up, it said that it was about six months earlier to that, that the title was referred to exclusively as the WCW Television title. It was the NWA belt they were, they were using, and, and the fact that the belt had changed at this point, the actual physical belt had changed, has, had completely passed you by. It is... I, as a, a belt geek myself, it is definitely something I find interesting. Yeah, I mean, even when Barry beat um, Steve for that one-week reign or the two-week reign, he was carrying still the NWA title, um, mm. which I just found that just a nice little piece of trivia that I thought I'd share with your your title enthusiasts out there. Well, thank you very much for that. It was uh, <laughs> good to, the little tidbit that I didn't know before. So um, we then go backstage to Eric Bischoff, who is with the self-proclaimed uncrowned world champion Big Van Vader and his manager Harley Race, who is no doubt waiting to take his mandated pay-per-view bump later. Isn't that right, Liam? Absolutely itching for it. You could tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the handshakes during the interview. Like, <laughs> Got to get out there and get floored by someone. Taking someone. too long. Anyone. Anyone. Cameraman, anyone, I Please, don't care. Please, just knock me on my arse, he's saying. 
So uh, match number four, it is uh, the first of our two semi-finals. Ricky Steamboat and Nikita Kolov against Steve Williams and Terry Gordy making their first appearance. So Williams and Gordy come out with the WCW World Tag Team titles around their waists, having recently beaten the Steiners for those belts, well, one week ago to be precise. Um, this one starts off with a lot of uh, mat wrestling where Steamboat holds his own with both his opponents as well as getting a few of his famous snappy arm drags in. Uh, the crowd are very quiet for this one. I'm not sure if it's quiet in a good way or not. Um, Steamboat tags in Koloff, who's the commentator's sake and match strength with Williams and Gordy. Um, Williams and Gordy, meanwhile, have singled out the lighter Steamboat. They're making frequent tags, sometimes blind tags to keep themselves in the driving seat. There's still lots of mat work and tying up of Steamboat to both wear him down and stop him from tagging in Koloff. Um, Steamboat counters a backdrop attempt with a modified DDT and makes the tag to Koloff, but this only gets a muted response from the crowd. But Williams and Gordy immediately take advantage over Koloff. There's no hot tag as expected. Koloff is selling big for his opponents. Um... Williams drops him over the top rope and clamps on the head scissors. It's all technically sound, but not particularly exciting, as evidenced by the silence of the crowd. This also isn't helped by Williams and Gordy's steadfast refusal to sell any of their opponent's offense. Um, Koloff kicks out of a power slam at two. He then counters a turnbuckle posting with a clothesline, and both men go down. Finally, Steamboat's tagged in, and he takes over on them. Um, Steamboat comes off the top with a chop from behind. Steamboat then goes up top again, but Gordy pushes him off into Williams, who catches him in a sort of modified bear hug come Oklahoma stampede, which gets the pinfall in 21:39. There's a few people celebrating, a smattering of boos, but largely there's very little reaction at all. Um, Dradley, were you? Uh, did this one hold your attention? It kind of did because during this match, I invented a drinking game. It's a, <laughs> right. It's, it's a drinking game called the Great American Bash 92 drinking game, where each time you see a fireman carry slam, you have to take a shot of something. And I guarantee by the time that this match comes along, you will be wasted. Every This whole night was buoyed by fireman carries. It's almost like the guys were playing a rib on the office saying, let's see how many fireman carry slams, fireman carry takeovers we can do in one night. Because I think I got up to about 200 by this match. Honestly, <laughs> it was ridiculous. The other thing, apart from like wanting to drink myself senseless with, with shots because I was watching so many fireman carries, <laughs> I also find myself getting the munchies for crisps, especially like, you know, McCoy's Thai flavoured crisps because... Uh, Gordy unleashed this move called the Oriental Twist, which was a yes. version of the STF. And each time I heard Oriental Twist, I kept on thinking of some kind of flavor of McCoy's crisps yeah. that I just wanted to, to, to try. So, you know, this, this got me hungry and got me thirsty yeah. all in one match. <laughs> Interesting. But but also interesting that uh, generally speaking, your uh, your thoughts are on food and drink rather than what's what's happening in the ring. Maybe for a very good reason. Liam, what were your thoughts on this one? So this match has so much storyline going into it. You've got the classic setup of the bad guys who are much more rested than their opponents. 
you know, they've they've technically qualified the same way, but they yep. got to do their quarterfinal early, so they've had one less match on the night. Uh, you've got, you know, one of the greatest baby faces of all time, someone who's proven who they can more more than hold their own in that situation as well, if need be. Uh, you've got everything you need to do a good dichotomy here, and what do we get? We get over 20 minutes of the same boring fucking tag team style we've had in the last few matches. It's just, it, it, I kind of already touched upon it in the previous one, but but that that rigid template they're insisting on everything carrying is just, it's it's destroying the fans watching. It's it's stifling the the really good workers they've got here. You know, again, we've got a situation where you've got three, in four wrestlers, you've got three amazing workers and one a well above average worker as well. And it's just incredible what this style is doing. <clears throat> one of the real things that kind of jumped out to me was that I remember being introduced to Williams and Gordy through the magazines. I think the first time I became aware of them approaching WCW was when in June, the June 92 issue of WCW magazine said Williams and Gordy are coming to WCW. And they had this this big feature on them, how they dominated all these tag teams and were these outstanding performers facing the likes of all the top guys of all Japan, etc. And I was really pumped up for the arrival of this tag team. And on this, which was their first real time to shine as a tag team that we're going to headline, spoiler alert, the pay-per-view, these guys should have been coming in all guns blazing. But what their first match, their first match of the tournament was a real dull snore fest, in my opinion. This should have been them coming in, brutalizing everyone, a real stiff contest, but also playing off of Steamboat's strengths. I mean, Steamboat's one of the best performers of the, the 20th century. One of the um, best sellers going, isn't he? Absolutely. And it just seemed that there were just all these outstanding components that just didn't line up. And this match on paper should have been an absolute classic. And it made me think that Williams and Gordy as a tag team are maybe overrated in the grand story of pro wrestling. And it almost made me question the fact that is the whole idea of all, of all the great all Japan pro wrestling tag team matches, is it because of the fact that it had quite a limited roster in terms of depth and the guys were used to working with each other night after night to the point that they became so comfortable that they had these outstanding matches? I don't know. But here they are in a fresh contest with two guys that are more than adequate in terms of being able to bring it their you know bring it to a pay-per-view and they failed to deliver in my opinion i mean peak all japan they wrestle i know they did the long matches the legitimate style but they were some of the best of all time at working to a crescendo Ooh. the sort of wrestling you're seeing here would be the first 50 to 60 percent of the match and they'll build it up and you'd get some crazy hard hitting back and forth they 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 pull off their big moves like it's the last thing they've got in them and the and the suspense was there for it. Uh, we are just getting the first sixty percent of that here because it's not building up to a to a crescendo. There is no fucking crescendo here. And it's funny, Bradley. You uh, as a Scotsman, you think around this time, 
1992, uh, and uh, the sport of snooker was being dominated by one of the greatest <coughs> of all time, your your compatriot Stephen Hendry, who I, I, I still have him as the best of all time above Ronnie O'Sullivan, to be honest. Uh, but the thing about Stephen Hendry and other sporting dynasties is that some of them were not exactly thrilling, and he did really suffocate the sporting extent, with the exception of maybe the rival with Jimmy White. Uh, it was a bit of a task to watch at times, and 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 again, I make that cross reference to sports. There are guys who who and teams who who do drag it down a little bit. But they're doing it because it's a legitimate thing and they want to win and they want to make the money and they want to be immortal. Fair enough, you, you do what you have to do. But they are deliberately writing something here. We've got the Stephen Hendry of pro wrestling coming in and, and, and dominating right from the right from the start because Bill Watts absolutely has to have these guys you know, as, as top stars. But they're doing it in that Stephen Hendry way and it's, it's just sapping the life out of everything around them. And I think it's not even like because think I mean I'm I'm a big snooker fan and thinking of you know some someone like Stephen Hendry when he was dominating and, and with other dominant champions as well you you often get the draw being people come in the hope to see them being beaten so they can say I was there when they when they finally lost. Um, my uh, fellow Brightonian, Chris Eubank, was an absolute master of this. I'm not saying he was the, the greatest boxer that ever lived, but he was one of the greatest uh, box office people, knowing how to draw people, how to put bums on seats. And he knew that people would pay good money to see if he would lose. And if he didn't lose, they would pay money to come back the next time in case that was the time that they, that he lost. And, and that's something I've done myself as a, as a heel, you know, as an investing, exploiting that. Whereas with, with this, it just seems to be rather than any kind of unpopularity, there just seems to be an indifference, which is for, in wrestling terms is the worst thing you could ever want. Well, they're not wiping the floor of everyone. You think of the the singles pitch with Big Van Vader where he's like injuring all these guys and just pummeling them in the ring and he's got Harley Race as the mouthpiece really putting it on top. Uh, You'd have a superstar tag team in WWE later, the Hollywood Blondes, where they would really antagonise you and work that crowd and make you despise them. So you would look forward to seeing them get their comeuppance. Uh, Williams and Gordy are doing none of this. They're very good at working a professional wrestling match. They're very good at working a legit style. But without the, as we said with the All Japan field, without the actual crescendo of the match, without running that big frantic uh, finish at the end, what what are you waiting for, really? Yeah. yeah well, I, I think Steamboat did break his ribs during this match, if, if memory serves me correctly. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so the, it's weird because it's almost one of those matches where it was a lot more punishing for the guys, and there wasn't necessarily the you know the artistic payoff in terms of it didn't seem as brutal as it obviously was in terms of stiffness. The fans almost suffered for the for the guys, you know, taking taking physical liberties with each other. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. Poor poor Ricky Steve. As I said, one of the the best 
baby faces going and even to this day if i'm if i'm talking with you know new new guys trainees or whatever i tell them to you know go back and look at ricky steamboat selling a beta heels maneuvers not the not the cheating not anything like that just the just selling a move and making it look look good they to my mind there is no one better than than ricky steamboat um Okay, match number five is our other semi-final. It is the Japanese team of Hiroshi Hase and Shinya Hashimoto against the American team of Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes. So, Paul Windham and Rhodes have had about 30 minutes to recover from their previous match. Um, it's a pretty even start to this one, but there's a lot more action on a vertical base than the previous match. Um, given the politics of Japanese wrestling, you pretty much know who's going to win this match before the bell even rings. Um, after about five minutes, the US team are on top with Rhodes working over the left arm of Hashimoto. Um, Hashimoto then gets back up to a vertical base again and wants a fist fight with Rhodes. He tries to get the crowd into it, which is uh, unusual for Japanese wrestler, but he's trying to fit in, I guess. But the crowd aren't really interested. They're only uh, coming to life when Rhodes lands a few strikes on Hashimoto. The Japanese team nail Rhodes with a spike pile driver, which, as we've mentioned earlier, being uh, NWA rules and not WCW rules is legal. Rhodes rolls over to the ropes, which Ventura says is instinctive. Um, he hasn't sold such a devastating move too much, it has to be said, but now the Japanese team take over on the offense. On the 15-minute mark, Hase clamps on a Boston Crab and a frustrated Wyndham has to rescue his partner. Moments later, Hase misses a spectacular double rope, sorry, top rope double knee drop, which looks painful as hell. Um, this allows Rhodes to make the tag to Wyndham, which brings the crowd to life as they pop big for the hot tag. Wyndham cleans house on both opponents bringing the heavy-duty power moves into the match. All four men are in the ring briefly before Rhodes throws Hashimoto out. Rhodes then leapfrogs a charging Hase, and Wyndham catches him with a big lariat as soon as he makes it through Rhodes' legs for the three count in 14 minutes, 55 seconds, to a good pop to the crowd. Did, uh, did this one get you back into things, Bradley? It, it, it was... It, this was a strange one because it seemed pretty competent all of this it was it was like watching something that's well played but there's no soul to it (laughs) in terms of in terms of like you know comparing it to music but what this match really illustrated to me was just how amazing the people that weren't on the tournament the steiners were at assembling these trans-pacific tag team contests i really thought that had the steiners been in this match this would have been these guys would have been the perfect foils for them um the match also made me realize that the the star of this tag team tournament wasn't actually any of the guys in the ring it was jim ross Jim Ross did such a good job during this match of outlining the guys' backgrounds, the styles, and talking about the credentials of everyone involved. And he almost carried this match himself by, it seemed that during this match, he just decided to almost call a podcast (laughs) and just go into business for himself and talk about everything that was on his mind, calling it as if it was on the radio and not necessarily calling it like a typical pro wrestling announcer. I love Jim Ross's work in this in this whole tournament. I thought he did a fantastic job. And he and Jesse really seemed to clash on this on this one a lot because they had two dissimilar approaches. Jesse seemed to want to throw in these kind of 
dated 1980s comedy references, which were really at odds with this whole tournament. Seemed they seemed like such an odd pairing for this telecast. Mm. Um, I really liked the spots with Dustin Rhodes being the face in peril, and where Wyndham would occasionally come in with a head of steam. And I loved the finish of this match where Dustin leapfrogged Hase into the lariat of Wyndham. This this match had a really I thought it had a hot finish, but the rest of it just seemed like a kind of drill in terms of performing a series of moves and not really thinking of it as a whole match. You know, it didn't seem to be a cohesive match. It just seemed to be like a series of spots. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, the whole thing about it being soulless and just a cohesive series of spots. Here's, here's what I'm saying about the template really showing up through because this is pretty much every match at this stage. And so some of these pairings are better than others based on who's involved or whether or not one of the best workers in the match has a rib injury and things like that. But, yeah, it is, it is that rigid at this stage. And it just, uh, as, the, as the sum of the parts, you can just feel the energy being sapped from the crowd, which is such a shame because I've, I think a good example to give with this match is that you if you took just this match alone or stuck it on your typical WCW pay-per-view from around this time, a non-Bill Watts one, and you had, you know, a, a crazy Cactus Jack brawl and you had some light heavyweight action and you had guys like Rude and the other members of the Dangerous Alliance doing their thing and being proper top-line antagonists in, in programs and rivalries and feuds, you'd probably look at this match and say it really added something to the show and you'd appreciate it more for what it was. But because this is the latest in a long line of them without any sort of respite or or palate cleanser, yeah, it's, uh, at this day I, was, I, I couldn't even see the good qualities that you guys were seeing because it's just, it's just sapping away at this stage. I mean, I think they did bring the crowd back a little bit as the close. I think the crowd were fully invested in the last few minutes of this match. And I think a lot of that was because they're obviously familiar with the baby faces of Rhodes and Wyndham. And it was the closest we had to, as I said earlier about a match having a crescendo, this was mm. the closest to an actual final third. You know, if you think of the other matches, the, the finishes kind of, you could, I, I think if, if you if you have watched wrestling often enough, you can tell that they were going home. Otherwise, the the finishes were pretty out of nowhere compared to the rest of the match. Whereas with this one, yeah, as you said, the the final few minutes was much more what you expect, where they where they up the pace, and yeah, it was it was a good final spot as well at the finish. So that's the closest we've had to that, and I think that's what got them back, and it just shows. Yeah. As we've said with a lot of these. Um, shows we've covered where they've lost the fans we always see these little moments that sh- where the audience show the wrestlers that they, they they are there to be brought back to, for a limited period of time if they do the right things they can be brought back into it indeed yes um okay so following a, an underwhelming interview with ron simmons setting himself up for a future world title challenge it is time for what is the real main event of the evening the world title match as 
uh, Big Van Vader challenges Sting for his WCW World Championship. So Vader comes out with his old uh, New Japan smoke-spewing headpiece, which I think he dropped not too long after this, if memory serves me right. He definitely looks hyped and psyched for this one. Um, Sting comes out to what I'd call a good squeaky pop from the kids, um, because yeah, it's the kids that love him. Um, he is wearing a Stars and Stripes jacket for the Great American Bash, along with red, white, and blue face paint. And one thing I love about about this is the contrast visually between the two of them couldn't be more obvious and deliberate. If you walked into a room and saw this and had no idea who they were, you would immediately know that Vader is the heel dressed all in black, the big, intimidating, growling heel. And Sting is the baby face because he is literally dressed all in white, even down to white boots. Um, we're reminded in commentary that, uh, as you said, Liam, that Vader had previously injured Sting's ribs and put him out of action. Um, Vader had had a monster push at this point in time and is quite rightly being portrayed as Sting's toughest challenge ever. Um, Vader starts by backing Sting into a corner and peppering him with his trademark cuffs around the head. Sting fires back with a clothesline, which Vader completely no-sells, and a cross-body block where Vader catches him and just dumps him to the canvas. Not a slam, not a throw, just, just literally just throwing him down on the canvas. It's another really good visual. Um, Vader then misses a corner splash and Sting picks him up with a belly-to-back suplex followed by a clothesline out of the ring and the crowd absolutely explode. And we've established at this point that Sting can pick up Vader despite the 200-pound weight difference and get him in trouble. And just to emphasize that point, Harley Race is looking very panicked at ringside. Um, Sting continues on the offense with Vader taking some great bumps for a big man. The commentators are also doing a great job of emphasizing the impact this is having on Vader and Race. They clearly weren't expecting this from Sting. Um, Vader stops Sting's momentum by countering a sunset flip by executing the sit-down splash onto Sting's chest, followed by two big elbow drops and a splash. He then adds insult to injury by putting Sting in a scorpion deathlock. The pace of the match has slowed right down and the crowd have gone quiet, but this is in a good way. And you can tell just by looking at the crowd that this is down to concern for the champion rather than any sort of boredom because the moment that Sting gets some offensive moves of his own in, the crowd spring back to life. Um, Sting manages to catch Vader in an impressive-looking German suplex, but Vader's foot catches referee Randy Anson, who takes an almost comedic bump but is back on his feet mere seconds later. Um, the commentators do put over, though, that a small delay may have saved Vader. Sting then lands a Stinger splash. He goes for a second one in the opposite corner, where Vader has his back to Sting and is hunched over in the corner, and Sting kind of catches his head on, I thought it was the metal support, but the uh, the replay shows it's actually the ring post. Um, he'd uh, been he's then draped over the top rope, half conscious, bleeding from the forehead. Jim Ross is going absolutely crazy on commentary, clearly supporting Sting and sharing the crowd's concern for the champion. Um, Vader makes a cover on a groggy Sting, just gets a two count. He then gets back up to a vertical base as Sting can barely get to his feet. Vader executes a powerbomb, makes a tight cover, 
and gets the title winning pinfall in 17 minutes, 17 seconds. And as Ventura mentions on commentary, the crowd look mostly stunned. So, well, I'll save my opinion for now. Bradley, what were your what were your thoughts on this one? This match is one of the most nostalgic pieces of footage from my entire life. I can remember the finish of this match opening a WCW Worldwide mm. in the summer of 1992. And this was the first time that I really accepted or come to really value the power of a world title change. So this, to me, was the, the benchmark for all world title matches ever. You know, I, I really loved everything about this match. I'm going to put my hand up and say, admit here that I was a little stinger when I was when I was a young man. I had a pair of ruse that had a scorpion <laughs> on the sole of those ruse, where if I ran on the sand, it would leave little scorpion prints everywhere. Fantastic. But while I loved everything about this match, I thought that Jesse and Jim Ross did a great job together. And this one, unlike what they had uh, done in the tournament, I actually thought that Jesse did a fantastic job of selling the um, the mindset of both wrestlers and how each of he, he did a great job as an analyst saying how Sting should approach the match and how Vader needs to capitalize on certain opportunities. What I didn't notice when I was younger until I rewatched this match recently was that there were so many anti WWF references throughout this match. Early on in the match, Sting was being pitched as this fighting champion, having just disposed of names such as Ric Flair, Sid, and Lex Luger. These are all guys that just joined the World Wrestling Federation. On top of that, there's a there's a point in time where Vader does this kind of flaccid bicep pose, and Jesse says there ain't no money in bodybuilding, which is clearly a <laughs> reference to the World Bodybuilding Federation that Vince McMahon had just launched to scathing reviews. So there were all these pot shots being taken at the World Wrestling Federation throughout this whole match. But in terms of a match, I absolutely think that this is almost a perfect world title match in its presentation. To me, Sting was just a larger-than-life hero. He was almost like, and I've often thought of him as being the Rocky Balboa of World Championship Wrestling. And, and the reason for that is because when you think of Rocky Balboa in the first Rocky film, he's this unknown fighter who then takes the champion to the limit. If you think yeah. of Sting, that was what he did with Ric Flair at the first clash. And this match almost felt like the Rocky Four, where he's in with a much larger opponent who's beating him senseless. He's getting punched drunk, but yet he keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps coming back. And that's what I loved about this match. Both guys did a fantastic job playing off each other's strengths. Sting did this really outstanding, valiant babyface uh, effort where he would sell things, but it didn't necessarily hurt him because he came off as being brave and courageous in his selling. Yeah. And I, th I think that it was actually just like such a well-told story. This, to me, is, is as good as it gets in terms of heavyweight championship competition in the context of a pro wrestling match and to me it's the template of so many other matches afterwards whether it was john cena and yamaga or basically every single one of brock lesnar's matches when he's facing a young, uh, a smaller guy it was it was perfect you know and, and you and you mentioned about the visual contrast this match is just 
almost it ticks almost every box for me as a fan you know <laughs> so i just i just absolutely love this match i love the way it was paced i love the fact that the crowd were hot when they needed to be and then were were brought down i just think it's a masterful storytelling exercise yeah and um i think we've said this before dean uh even though there are a few other uh contenders for me sting versus vader is the definition of wcw this is the this is the dictionary entry of wcw done good wcw at its peak and i like the rocky analogy there i've got to say i got more of a club of lang vibe from vader Especially when you consider the fact that early in Rocky field, uh, in Rocky Three, early on in the film, Clubber Lang actually stops Rocky and wins the title, and yeah. Rocky's redemption comes later on. As we know, Sting would get a few wins over Vader. Most of them come in a little while after this. Uh, their feud became much more 50-50 after Vader was away from the world title. Um, so watching this and seeing the the psychology and the excitement and the selling and the passion and the storyline and the crescendo and the fans getting involved it made me wonder one thing and that is what sort of naked pictures of bill watts did sting and vader own to be able to get away with doing such things and not being made to wrestle a flat realistic match for 30 minutes before a finish just happens because this is this is pretty much the only time you're going to see that on this show to a to a satisfying extent with little 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 dribs and drabs and glimmers of hope we referenced earlier. But this is this is the bill and end all. This match has been regarded by many as the quintessential example of having uh, a heel cleanly win a big singles match um, and. I think a lot of people would refer to it as the the, the Sting Vader style, you know, as a, as a as a metric of success. And it was maybe just just over a decade later that something came remotely close to this, which was uh, funny you mentioned Brock Lesnar because Brock's first world title win at SummerSlam against The Rock had a very similar template and a very similar energy and drama and selling. And that was a that was a real hidden gem. I think it was the, the first match that came close to this one in, in, in a similar setting with similar circumstances. Yeah, this is this is fantastic. And Sanko, I meant to mention this earlier when you're talking about the way Jim Ross was really commentating and doing a good job. There is there is some of this here, but especially during the last match and, and overall through the show. It reminded me of, and I've made so many other comparisons to real sports, and obviously they're trying to make it like a real sport here, but I think of, of things I watch like baseball, for instance. I'm, I'm a baseball fan, and baseball can be exciting and it can be rewarding, but you know those matches are, are three, three and a half hours long, and there is there is downtime between the, the good stuff that happens in your typical baseball game and, and it really made me appreciate broadcast commentators and television commentators in that respect when you see how prepared they have to be to have so much 
insights, so many notes prepared, so many tangents they can go off on, how many conversations they could strike up during a particularly quiet moment. And that's exactly what Jim Ross was 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 doing for the most part here, with or without Jesse Ventura's help. And that carried on with, with this match. And yeah, that is, that is the biggest testament to how good he is. But it's, it's so good, that at least for one match, that the wrestlers in the ring really gave him something to sink his teeth into. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I've got to agree with, with both of you. I mean, this, to me, is absolutely the perfect example of how to crown a heel champion without shenanigans and cheating and bad luck and that. He basically, on the night, is just better than Sting. And, and as you quite rightly said, Bradley, Sting doesn't lose an, an ounce of credibility because of this. Um he he just lost to a better man and, and the fans will want him to come back stronger and more and better prepared because he now knows what he's dealing with. And it, it just absolutely makes sense. And everything's spot on for me. Yeah, the visuals, the style difference, the story of the match, you know, the way that, that Vader starts off no selling and Sting catches him with that belly to back suplex. And all of a sudden that one move, the whole match changes because now you know that Sting can pick him up and get him off his feet. And you've got you know these distinctive segments of, of the match and, and different phases of it where one person's in charge and then another. Um, the commentary is spot on. And you know, my, my, this is my personal opinion that I always think that the, the, the title, the, whether it's the world title or you know the championship of the promotion, whichever whatever level that may be, should be the most important thing in that company. Um, in that you know you you should have um, ratings and rankings so that you know people getting closer to a, a, a title shot. And one thing that always cheapens a title is when a heel cheats to win. Um, and and is forever forever cheating because it just loses the value of that title. And I think it's different when you got someone like a Ric Flair who has got so, had such a pedigree that he can play that perfectly. Um, and, and really, you think about Vader's title reigns, and there's very little shenanigans. You know, I mean, I can think of. Harley Race zapping um, Cactus Jack with a cattle prod in the Texas Death Match at Havoc '93, but apart from that, you know, he won his matches by being better than his opponents. And and to me, there's no greater threat, threatening heel champion than someone like that. Yeah, I mean, the finish—you had that incidental finish where Sting's gone into the ring post, and that's kind of kept that whole narrative of, you know, that one moment has shifted it. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's not like it was a banana skin either. At the end of the day, if you, if you look at that closely, Sting has gone for another Stinger splash and Vader is slouched rather than being upright mm. with, his, with his back to Sting to the point where the ring post really is right there to be hit. He's made a fatal mistake in in a match that's going back and forth anyway and he's and he's paid the price because he's eating the power bomb soon after so if yeah. really put that you know you it's one of them situations where you'd if if that match had happened yesterday and we don't know what the future is to hold 
we would love to see them go again because the body of the work was fantastic. We were in full, but more importantly, it's it's still a pick 'em. They thought again, it could easily go either way. You really don't know. Yeah, and and we've talked before on this podcast about the the great contrasts that make a great feud, and we we talked about. Um, I mean, it's incredible to think that. The pay-per-view before this, just a couple of months before, was Beach Blast 92, which we um, we covered with uh, Greg Lambert all the way back in episode 19. Um, and this, you know, this is the same promotion, but it's unrecognisable. But that that pay-per-view had the the great feud between Ricky Steamboat and Rick Rude, and we've talked about Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. How you've got these polar opposite characters, and and as you said, Liam, you know, Sting v Vader was one of the the marquee feuds of WCW and they've worked so well together because they were such polar opposites in their look and their style. Um, and you know, what we, as we found later on that, you know, the two of them got on very well and, and that um, Sting was in touch with Vader um, right up until the end. One of the few people who was, was still, you know, checking in on him as he was, um, as, as he was, his health was declining. Um, what, so, one- one thing that's of interest as well to UK fans and, and WCW fans as, in general is that business from Sting and Vader's feud would actually lead to record business in the United Kingdom in March 1993. Yeah. You know, the, the, the top, the biggest drawing crowd that WCW had ever pulled was 11,000 fans up in 1993 up to that point in time, which was buoyed by the world title match, the rematch between Sting and Vader. And that was the key part of their draw. It wasn't necessarily the British Bulldog joining WCW, which obviously did add numbers as well, but it was that Vader-Sting main event, March 11th, 1993. That was the match that everyone wanted to see. And And I was there. Yeah. 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 And history was made yet again. Yes, I was there. And I, I remember... Um, I, I had to get special permission from, uh, from my, uh, teacher, my year teacher at school to, uh, allow me to leave school early to travel to London to get there in time. And, um, I, I don't quite know how I managed to persuade him to let me go, but he did. And, um, the next morning he saw me and he said, how was it? And I'm like, the world title changed hands. That never happens because it was a house show. No yeah. one expected the world title to change hands. And yes, they changed it back less than a week later in Dublin before they went home again. But they, it wasn't one of those phantom changes. They acknowledged it. They showed footage of it. And um, yeah, it was just such a good feud. Such a good feud. Yeah. And I, I also had the privilege of seeing it live because they headlined the Aberdeen Scotland show as well. So <laughs> um, it was just fantastic. One of the things I loved about this was the use of other players within the context of the match. Harley Race did a fantastic job of appear, appearing so stressed mm. at ringside. He, you know, you, you could almost... Now, obviously, Harley Race would generally sweat buckets during, <laughs> uh, you know, his, his appearances as a manager, but he was so great at, like, thumping down with both hands the canvas of the ring when you get frustrated when there was a near fall. All of that stuff. I thought the lighting was fantastic. The fact that they dimmed the lights... And it just seemed like more intense and epic. I loved the shots where you saw over the shoulder of Ron Simmons, who was talking tactics with Tony Schiavone. And you could almost sense that, that there was a real importance 
to the world title that was just slowly sprinkled into this match mm. that you just don't get everywhere else. And I also loved how invisible referee, I was almost going to say Sean Penn, but his lookalike Randy Anderson was in this match. He did a fantastic job of not being obstructive. He just let the wrestlers tell a fantastic story. And one of the things that I thought that was interesting about this match was that it seemed that Sting had been talking to the New Japan guys backstage because he used the koppel kick of Jushin Liger. He was using the jumping DT of Hashimoto. It seemed that he just completely used this weird, you know, almost Pacific, uh, trans-Pacific style. But one of the things that I loved about this match in terms of Sting selling. He was actually selling when he was doing offensive moves. There's a there's a point in the match where he lifts Vader up for the Samoan drop, and he's visibly straining. Yeah, and it's yeah, his like, knees are shaking, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. He's shaking. His head's shaking. His knees are shaking, and it's almost like he's selling whilst delivering offensive moves, which was just to me such a unique element that you don't really see now. And speaking of Harley Race, did you see that shift when they did the ring post spot and Sting came down? He was seeing it like Race as the former world champion recognised that that Sting was half out. He was going apoplectic at ringside, trying to get Vader's attention. So like, like, you've got him, you've got him, you can do it. Yeah. Uh, that was another little touch I loved. But, yeah. you know, this is the, the great thing with Harley Race in this match. And this is something that... Whenever I've done like manager training seminars with with people in this country, a manager is there to uh, like present the wrestler and to enhance the presentation and the performance. And at no point is Harley Race making himself the centre of attention. Everything he is doing channels your attention back to Vader. It just emphasises mm. something about that match. He's a plot uh, device, yeah. Yeah, he's never bringing, he's never trying to draw attention to himself. Absolutely fantastic. And three years in a row, we've had a new champion at the Great American Bash. Yeah. And two years, it's been guys that have been managed by Harley Race. Indeed, it has, yes. Yes, because Luger, uh, Luger and Wyndham the year before, wasn't it? That's right, when Harley Race came down to ringside and said it's time. And then Luger used the, the pile driver finish. Yeah. Yep, it's 91 bash, which uh, no one's wanted to review yet, Liam, because it's fucking awful. Yeah, it's understandable, but we're going to have to at some point. <laughs> one day, one day we'll run Who out. Who wouldn't want to review a show that was buoyed by the likes of um, the Yellow Dog versus Johnny B. Bad? Sounds like you're booking yourself for a return appointment, <laughs> break. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we then go to uh, so basically the moral of the story here is watch this match. It's just even now it it's brilliant. Watch it. So we then go to Vader's locker room for an interview with a new champion and a jubilant Harley Race who didn't even take a bump in the match. Liam, what the hell's going on? Um, Race talks about how they destroyed the myth of Sting, which is, as, as we know from years gone by and the early days of this podcast, is a phrase that resonated with a teenage AS, as we have discussed on uh, previously, as I said here. Um, so it is time for the final match of the night. I don't call it the main event. It is the NWA World Tag Team Tournament final. Steve Williams and Terry Gordy taking on 
uh, Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham. And Ole Anderson is our special referee for this one. Paul Windham and Rhodes have already wrestled two matches, lasting 35 minutes between them at this point in time. Um, before the match begins, the Steiner brothers come down to ringside and are immediately sent to the back. I've got no idea why they had them uh, come down for that. But I wonder if they got a pay-per-view bonus for it. And now I've just realized I've answered my own question. Um, this is more of the same from the previous Williams and Gordy match. Lots of mat wrestling in front of a silent crowd. Um, Wyndham briefly clamps on a figure four leg lock on Gordy, but Williams na- nails... Uh, it's not really sold much. Um, Williams and nails a belly-to-belly suplex on him. Um, you can hear a pin drop as Ventura tries to cover by saying the crowd are still stunned by Vader's clean win over Sting in the previous match. Um once again, Rhodes has been singled out as the younger, more vulnerable member of the team. But even when he gets a brief moment of offense in to give the crowd some hope, he's shut down within seconds and it's back to Williams and Gordy on top. Um, Rhodes finally makes a tag. Wyndham's on the offense, dropping both of them with clotheslines before clamping on a sleeper on Williams. But Williams counters it within seconds by running Wyndham into the rope, into the corner. And surprise, surprise, the WCW tag champs are back dominating the match. Um, even when the faces make the hot tag, there's no pop from the crowd. They're completely disengaged, it feels. Um, when Rhodes gets the hot tag in later, he literally gets 10 seconds of offense in before the heels have regained the advantage. Um, Williams goes for the Oklahoma Stampede on Rhodes, but when the ref's back is turned, Williams, oh, sorry, Wyndham drop kicks Rhodes in the back, sending Williams down to the canvas with Rhodes on top of him. It's the first time in this match the crowd pop because they think that this could be the smash and grab win for the babyfaces, but Williams kicks out at one. Couldn't even give him an earful. The end comes moments later. Williams accidentally runs into the corner as Rhodes dodges him. Rhodes goes for the bulldog, but Williams shoves him off. Rhodes runs into Gordy, who's sitting on the apron, fighting Windham on the outside. This knocks Rhodes out of sorts. and uh, Williams runs in with a lariat, which Rhodes takes on uh, takes one of his uh, spinning, his awesome sort of 360 spin bumps for to get the pinfall and in an excruciating 21 minutes, 10 seconds to add the NWA tag titles to the WCW ones they already held. And as the lights go up, you can see how many people had fucked off home after the Sting Vader match, having been bored shitless by this one. Um, Bradley, were you bored shitless by this one or did you find any redeeming features? <sighs> This is such a strange match because it, to me, it just reminded me on WrestleMania X8 with Jericho and Triple H when they were following The Rock and Hulk Hogan. I was there as well for that one. You're, you're yeah. just listening to all the shows I've been to. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of those ones where, where you follow the match that everyone wanted to see mm. with a match that not necessarily everyone did. This was almost a weird tribute to 1970s NWA. It felt like a, a Dory Funk Jr. match. You know, where you've got this kind of slow, methodical style where yeah. um, it kind of, you're, you're compelled in some way, but you're not necessarily excited. But you know that there's a lot at stake, so you keep watching. Um, it certainly wasn't as solid as Wyndham and Williams' singles match at Starcade 87. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was a strange kind of heat dynamic. I know that Jesse was pitching it as almost being this kind of Bruno Sammartino, Ivan Koloff, he, you know, the the the, the people have been uh, drained of all of their enthusiasm because of the world title change, and they're stunned and whatever. But I just think the people were bored. You know, mm. um, one of the things that I I I think 
is that having watched this match, I think Ole Anderson should have been booked as the referee for Starcade '97 because his his fast counts were like you know he, if you were to watch all of Ole Anderson's counts, he makes Bronco Lubich seem like Mike Tyson. His hand collides so slowly; it's almost like as if he'd had like fractured hands or something. That he was just so slow. I don't know if he had nerve damage in his hands or what it was, but he was gingerly going to the canvas with those three counts. Unreal, you know. Um, in terms of this match, I think my favourite part was the when the Steiners walked out because it at least got a slight pop, and then. Yeah. I, and then I had the kind of fun moment of trying to count the guys from security who were actually jobbers. They, they were they were ushered, the Steiners were ushered back by guys that were called WCW security, but I recognised them as jobbers such as Randy Starr, Bob Cook, Jumping Joey Mags. So to me, that was like the highlight of the match, just seeing these these faces that I would see get crushed every week on Worldwide. Bob Cook, I, I think, may have been one half of the masked headhunters, if memory serves me right. I uh, think, the clash. Yeah, I think the headhunters were portrayed by the Odes, who were the Australian team. If if memory serves me right, they did. I think they did double duty that night. I'm going to look it up. Okay, I'll take um, words. Larry O'Day and his son. Would that be yeah. right? Yeah, I'll, um, um, I'll take a look. I think that's because I I believe that um, they were using some Florida talent for that card. That's that's why um, you had the great Europeans, Joe and Dean Malenko, yeah. and uh, etc. But yeah, I, the headhunters, obviously, you know, I don't know if they no showed or what the situation was there. Um, knowing knowing the, the situation, they probably had a disagreement over money. Well, according, um, here you go. According according to uh, Wikipedia, it says that the headhunters were Bob Cook and uh, Joe Cruz. All right, well, even better. So Joe Cruz would wear a mask again later on. He would be the masked wrecker, um, another legendary jobber. Um, when he, he was one of these jobbers that. When he would pose as the mask wrecker, the the commentary team would claim that they didn't know who he was, even though he had this um, very memorable chain tattoo around his arm. So uh, it was almost like Doom when the guys would, you know, who are these who are these two guys that look identical to two other members of the roster? Um, Yes. (laughs) Not not difficult to work out, but. I, I, I'm going off on a massive tangent now, but I, the other the other masked jobbers from that era I remember were um, was Zan Panzer, who I believe mm-hmm. was also builders from Europe, and the Galaxian. Oh, good grief! Wow. I remember. What? I don't know who I don't know who they were, but um, but yeah, they're the two that I remember. Mm-hmm. The the joys of staying up at three o'clock in the morning, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Or in my case, I would I would I would set the timer on my VCR, you know. Once I've taped it, a ref I don't even know if people nowadays know what taping it means, but I would sit there with my cocoa pops and watch my pro wrestling before going to school. So there you go. Yeah. I'm I'm told by uh, the internet that a good old internet that Zan Panzer was Brad Anderson, the son of Gene Anderson. Wow. The <laughs> Second generation greatness, right there. You know, the uh, now, and I believe 
Oli's son. I know that the Andersons weren't related, um, or certainly Gene and Oli weren't. But uh, yeah, Oli's son wrestled as Brian Anderson. That's I think, right. Yeah. He, he wore the maroon gear with the the uh, Minnesota Wrecking Crew kind of homage look to him, um, and was actually that was. The, his involvement in Smoky Mountain was the reason that Ole ultimately departed from WCW, if I, if I recall correctly. Yes. So, um, yeah, weird tangent that's probably of no interest to anyone but us. But, <laughs> but we have to fill some airtime, guys, because this match was so dull and 1970s-ish in its in its execution that you've that we've got to talk about something else, right? Okay, so. Um... What what was the match we we're talking about again? I forgot. <laughs> Williams and Gordy and Rhodes and Wyndham in this weird nineteen seventies type Florida match. Uh, now I'm glad. Now I wish you didn't remind me. But uh, one thing that did stick out to me about this was that um, how how big were Bill Watts's brass balls to to have the front to 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 put on this show of self-indulgent, mindless tripe, with one exception. And just to add insult to injury, he brings the Steiners to the arena to participate in the show. Doesn't have them wrestle on the card, even though it's a tag team tournament. Even though they were the the, the WCW tag team champions until they moved the titles just before this pay-per-view. Literally has them do a backstage interview and then come out before this match starts and just to think of what they actually could have added in terms of you know decent wrestling moves and excitement and dichotomy to to the tournament and and that's just like the ultimate final insult to it all there's there's really not much i can add to to about the actual match that i haven't already said about the others because this is literally (laughs) one great world title match and and six of the complete completely the same match almost um but one thing i will add this was after the match that really stuck out to me was that they've gone to jim ross and jesse ventura for the wrap-up and they are almost they, 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 well almost they are pretty much lampshading the whole aspects of this show where it's being done really legitimately with no actual um you know payoff for the viewer as far as entertainment goes, well, I think like Ventura says something like, you know, so all, all of your heroes have been beaten, Jim Ross, and sometimes in sports that's how it goes, and and I've said similar stuff for that. It's like you're really just rubbing it in even more that we have had that we we have had the Manchester United versus Chelsea 2007 FA Cup final of wrestling shows. Where it, wherein, yes, you can't deny the quality of the people involved in and the fact they've got there through legitimate means. But my word, why am I being made to watch this atrocity? Um, oh, it's just the, the, the whole the whole show is it's just we've covered we've covered really bad pay per views. We've covered just absolute. Well, I mean, we've done New Blood Rising in 2000 for crying out loud. Yeah, we've done some strange ones we've done some admittedly quite good ones but have we ever done a duller pay-per-view than this with one diamond in that rough i think i think that the fact that that this had this pay-per-view had that sting vader match saves it from being 
in the same depth as Halloween Havoc 92, which was coincidentally the next pay-per-view and was also under the Bill Watts regime. But um, it, yeah, it, it just beg, beggars belief for me that the beauty of wrestling is that it's a work that you can manipulate results. And the reason it, it is a work was because when you had legitimate matches with legitimate results, matches went on for ages and weren't particularly exciting. But this seems to have bypassed Bill Watts. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost like the polar opposite of Vince Russo, isn't it? Yeah, he has chosen boring in a situation where he gets to decide and he, he and Jim Ross get to decide exactly what happens with enough people on that roster, as we've already mentioned, to make exciting things happen. They have chosen to bore their audience. And you're absolutely right when you say about people on the roster being capable of exciting matches, because if you look at the participants in almost every single match, there's a Hall of Famer or a Hall of Fame level person in each match, you know, everyone in that in that whole tournament had the capacity to bring it. You know, you look at the likes of Hiroshi Hase, one of the best performers of the 1990s. Wyndham, although he wasn't quite at his peak here, he was probably one of the top five workers of the 1980s and could still bring it to some level. Rick Rude, one of the premier stars of 1992. Everyone, Steve Austin, a, a young talent with a lot to prove who would end up being possibly the, the, the most, uh, you know, capable headlining attraction in the history of American wrestling. Yeah. You had so many uh, outstanding components in this tournament, but nothing, nothing worked, <laughs> you know, apart from the opener. Ooh. I think, it, and, and it's down to what, as I said, you're in control of this, and it is down to what you ask those people to do. You know, they can give you an exciting match, or they can bore the pants off you, depending on what you ask them to do. And I mean, what what baffled me with with both the semi final and the final is that kind of traditional wrestling logic, uh, mechanics, whatever you want to call it would be that if you've got a heel champ, well, tag team or singles wrestler, but if you've got if you've got the heels dominating the match, and they pretty much dominated both those matches, because as I said, they barely sold anything. The 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 comebacks for the baby faces lasted literally ten to fifteen seconds before they're cut off again. And whenever anything like that happens, generally speaking, the the heel dominates the the bulk of the match because the baby face is going over with a, a smash and grab banana skin type win, but a win nonetheless. But with this, we had we had the dominate heels dominating, but then winning the match as well. It, it, and I think that that point where the fans popped when when Rhodes drop kicked Wyndham onto Williams for that pinfall attempt. That was the crowd thinking this was the end because that's how they'd been conditioned to think from watching wrestling over the years. There was only one highlight in this whole match, and to me, it was just when Rhodes takes that lariat. Mm. You know, <laughs> there's nothing else in this match that I want to revisit for the rest of my life. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know. I, yeah. that's, that's, it's just so, it's such a missed opportunity. The weird thing is, Williams and Gordy and Wind, Windham and Rhodes would actually have an exciting rematch down the line. They had a really good match on, on Saturday night, I believe, for the titles, mm. um, where there was a title switch. The four com- competitors were capable of, of pulling together a hot match, but that match, the rematch, was a much more traditional American-style tag team match. I don't know what the hell was going on in this match, this weird kind of sports-centric thing. I think that what happened in 2000, in 2020 or 2019, once Cody Rhodes and the guys that were starting up AEW said that they were going to go through this like sports-centric reintroduction of pro wrestling, they then watched the Great American Bash 1992, <laughs> changed all of their changed plans. Changed their minds. Yeah, because they said that this, you know, maybe maybe somebody uh, with supernatural powers took them to 1992, showed them that this would be their ways. You know, this would be this would is what would happen if they went down the sports centric route. And then they thought, oh, my uh, God, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe Dustin Rhodes just said, I was there. It was shit. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he was probably suffering from some kind of PTSD from the tournament. Exactly. Yeah. And then then it's like, well, we can we can go through the uh, sports centric route or we can introduce Chris Statlander. She's from space. Yeah. Let's go for that instead. (laughs) Um, Do you do you guys. Um, I'll start with you, Bradley, and then go to you, Liam. But do you think we would have been better served to have had just the semi-finals and the final in, in this pay-per-view, and then a few other matches, singles matches, or whatever, bulking out the rest of the card? I mean, I, I, I when I before I watched this 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 card, I did look at Wikipedia and I saw the dark match that was presented, and that was Super Invader versus Marcus Bagwell. So I don't know if I necessarily wanted <laughs> that, you know, being that that was the offering. What I will say is that tag team tournament aside, the summer of 1992, in terms of weekly programming, I think that was actually the hottest, one of the hottest periods that WCW had. Ooh. The 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 feud between Rude and Koloff, which had kind of spurred out of the Steamboat and Rude matches, that was one of the the most fondest memories that I have as a wrestling fan. They had so many great matches, and it was just such a heated time for pro wrestling. What I loved about that era was the unpredictability of it all. Now I know that. Maybe Bill Watts didn't serve himself very well on this occasion. But one of the things that I did like about Bill Watts in his risk-taking was that he wouldn't be afraid to switch the titles at a house show, like we mentioned at the, uh, at the in the London show and the Dublin show. But he also did that in July with the likes of the light heavyweight title, how it was dropped from Scotty Flamingo to Brad Armstrong, and the tag team titles were dropped from Williams and, uh, from Steiners to Williams and Gory at house shows. There was an element of credibility which made fans want to revisit arenas because in the early 1990s, arenas had become less valuable. And I kind of, I, I did commend Bill Watts' attempts to try and regenerate arena business by taking chances in that respect and not and not only making world titles 
change hands on pay-per-views, which is almost what's happened with American wrestling now. You, yeah. you know, you know that there's not going to be a title change for the WWE Championship at house show. That's just a, that's just a given now. It's going to be a pay-per-view generally. Yeah. And I admired that about WCW, how they tried to legitimize it somewhat. So th- there were this to me, this this show isn't necessarily reflective of 1992 as a whole, because if you watch this pay-per-view, you'll think, oh, my God, that is the worst period in WCW's history. If you watch the weekly programming, to me, it's actually quite dissimilar. WCW Worldwide and Pro and all those shows, Saturday night, some of the matches from the Saturday era, uh, sorry, those um, those weekly cards, they're, they're just really good. And the matches don't go too long. They're the right length. The TV matches are generally quite hot. The main events are hot, you know. Um, and this is just so dull. I was almost yearning for jobber matches just so that I could see the guys get squashed. I don't know. I this 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 match is just an experiment that just didn't go well. Yeah. That's how I can only describe it. Liam. Well, if if you're asking me the same question, if you're asking me, uh, should we have gone started at the semis? Yeah, if you're asking me if if there's a an acceptable point of 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 where we could have cut short this idea, I would say we'd cut short this idea by buying Bill Watts out of his contract as soon as he submitted this plan. <laughs> Like literally, just just pack, just write off whatever millions it is. Just give him his whole contract and just end it here and there. And it's funny you you referenced a, a long time ago. You referenced the um, the the match between Wyndham and Rhodes against uh, against these two that was actually quite good and exciting. And my my memory, my long term memory, could be a little bit off, but. I think I recall that potentially, but was that when, was that after Halloween Havoc? Was that? It like, was just before because just I before. Think, this was yeah. around this was around the time where Bill Watts uh, the, the bubble was bursting. He was falling out of favour, and they were already starting to think, right, what's the what's the next plan? And I think by Starcade '92, they were well and truly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I have to wonder if it's because they weren't being micromanaged into this mind-numbing microcosm of of oh yeah, was, I've, um, I've never I'm been so bored on this podcast just just actually talking about this fucking pay-per-view it was great <laughs> when we were doing yeah. sting and vader i enjoyed that but yeah it was um september the 21st 92 so um yeah about a month before um before um havoc and it was on an episode of saturday night because you'll remember uh, you'll remember that uh, as early on as Havoc when he wasn't even six months into his time he was already having to walk back his uh his rule about top rope moves and things like that uh in in more on-screen live event admin but um but yeah but even then he was having to walk these things back because they weren't working and he was losing his audience and we we are you know we covered Wrestle War early on where Wrestle War was kind of set up and produced by the previous guys but he had already been confirmed he was he was like that football manager who 
who's sitting on the touchlines having signed the contract, but it's still the assistant, the caretaker, covering this one final game before the new manager gets to work Monday morning on the training ground, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and two months in, look at the state of it. Look at the state of it. One of the things that I thought that was quite interesting is that I believe that this was the first time in the 90s that we had had three pay-per-views in three consecutive months. Is that right? No, this was... Because this is in July. Uh, Beach Blast was... was in uh, June. And Wrestle War was in May. Ah, yes. No, I was so, thinking this is August. You're absolutely right. This was July. And then we'd also had a clash two weeks prior to this. So in terms of content output, this was actually a very busy period for the yeah. company. No, that's Which, a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, so you know everyone credits uh, credits Bischoff for bringing in the monthly pay per views, but this this summer or this spring into the summer was was almost like the the forerunner for that. Yeah, but, I, I thought so. Yeah, one month after the next, but but as I said, the this and Beach Blast were you know a, a month apart, but it absolutely felt like chalk and cheese, like mm-hmm. like two different companies. Yeah, Beach Blast I think is one of the best pay per views that WCW ever produced mm. you know in terms of that even though that again Williams and Gordy kind of, I, I was never I was never big on them like some of the other historians or writers or fans I, I in terms of their American output you know <laughs> their Japanese work was was great I just never bought them as being worth the hype you know and um yeah, I was I was quite I was quite glad when that, that tag team dis, disassembled in in October uh, that year, and then we had the replacement of Steve Williams and the real Steve Williams as well. Two Steve Williams. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. But yeah, this this match, this this card. Wow, I've never been so happy to see some credits roll up my sleeve. <laughs> Apart well, from the, the the Sting the Sting Vader which we mentioned, yes. the one thing that this this pay per view did make though, even though the card was dull, the production team did an outstanding job of making this card seem exciting in video highlight reels. Because mm-hmm. whenever I watched WCW Worldwide and they showed segments of this pay per view, they did they did some magic that made this card seem exciting, and it really isn't. <laughs> Ah, the art of advertising. Wonderful. Well, we we will we will leave the pay per view there. I think we've all um, unanimously uh, come to a thumbs down decision on it. However, before we let you go, Bradley, we always mm-hmm. do ask our guests to choose a piece of WCW theme music that is pertinent or memorable to them. Mm-hmm. So, um, Liam, do you have our tune queued up there? I am guessing you're going to ask me to play it. I am ask, going to ask you. I'm, I'll give you the countdown. If you could press play in three, two, one, go.
Oh look, it's the glimmery it's the feet. What did you call it? <laughs> the uh, what did I say? The twinkly, sparkly, something, something the, like that. Stunning Steve Austin. Yes. Well, there you go. What, what a coincidence. And the, yeah, this well, this as we've as we've said, this this conjures up memories of those late night WCW shows on ITV. Um, and it, it it was odd because it just it didn't quite feel like a wrestler's entrance music to me, but at the same time, it seemed to fit him really well. This music, good God, it's so weird because it's almost like atonal music. I don't know if anyone knows what that is, but it has, it's, it, to me, it, it felt like Ross Geller from Friends mucking around in his keyboard. <laughs> That's what this music was like. And it also conjured up some kind of weird visuals of some of the future war scenes in the Terminator movie. It had this kind of weird synth thing going on, but I, but I loved the campiness of this music. There was just something about it that was just absolutely nostalgic to me it just reminded me on 1991 watching all these WCW shows and whenever I think of this music I actually keep hearing uh, announcements from Gary Capetta because mm. so many of Steve's matches would go to a time limit draw and I just always remember Gary Capetta being one of the key components that made a, a, a television title match exciting with his five minutes remaining in the time period five minutes and that would actually help build the heat. Yeah. And that's what I loved about um, Steve Austin's reign as a TV champion. He was the first. I mean, when I started watching WCW, Arn Anderson was the, the TV t- uh, champion, but he never really wrestled in defenses of that belt. When I can recall as a fan, when I was first watching it, Arn just happened to be in tag team matches, but he was introduced as a TV titleist. Steve was the first guy that I really saw where the TV title and the gimmick of the TV title mattered because I loved the idea that the the, the television time remaining time limits, they, they would be a real factor in those matches. I loved that as a heat device. I loved the whole presentation of Steve and Jeannie as being the, the kind of heel young tag team uh, sorry young uh, entrance into the into the promotion and steve was so good at such a young age yes as yeah. a as a performer you know when you look at his run in wcw that's his second year in the business compare yeah. him to the likes of someone that's considered a newcomer nowadays a lot of the newcomers on the on on the nxt scene or the the raw roster or even the British wrestling independent scene, they might have been in the business for five years and they're nowhere near as good as Steve was in his first year in the business. Yeah. Well, I remember when we when we covered Beach Blast 92, as I said, back in episode 19 with Greg Lambert, and there's I've just looked it up to refresh my memory. There's, there's a six-man tag of Dustin Rhodes, Barry Windham and Nikita Koloff against Arn Anson, Steve Austin and Bobby Eaton. And I remember commenting at the time that um, it, there's, this goes for Dustin Rhodes as well, but given the, the relative inexperience of, of Steve Austin compared to the other people in that match, at no point does he look out of place yeah. among them, nor did Dustin Rhodes. And then, you know, you put the clock forwards several years and you look at 
the the career and the success that Steve Austin had, and the 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 career longevity and success that that Dustin Rhodes has had. That's right, and and one of the things that really strikes out to me about if you compare 1991 WCW to later on in the promotion, there was a real youth movement early on in the company, whether it was Steve and Dustin and even young, like relatively young headliners like Sting and the Steiners, etc. That would be the opposite of the later years in the promotion when it would rely on aging talent, which had been kind of played out. So. Yeah. The, the the contrast in early WCW between latter day WCW is so vast, so vast. And also there seemed to be a weird cultural shift where guys could lose without getting buried in the company. Yes. It seemed at one point. Whereas, you know, you look at Goldberg how he lost the world title. He got destroyed in that in that in that match when he had Kevin Nash and Scott Hall gives him this, the the taser gun. That's the opposite of Sting and Vader, you know. And and um, that music that that you've just played and it's just so emblematic of what was a really nostalgic time period. If you were a, a fan growing up watching ITV late at night, and wow, what an era! And it just obviously. It brings back to me the memory of working on Jeannie's book and what and reading up and watching all those matches afresh again and and what a ride that was as well. The fact that we did this book, re- rekindling my interest as a young fan, it just brings me back to a ten-year-old boy watching uh, WCW with my face paint on, you know, all that kind of stuff. I shouldn't admit on the air that I had face paint on, right? But we, we can uh, we can pay off Liam fact, to edit, edit it out, don't worry. In, in fact, you know what? I'm going to be honest. This is this is a worldwide exclusive. I don't even think that I had face paint. I think that my mum probably applied her lipstick and <laughs> on, onto onto my face, you know. And um, and I probably had the same colours as uh, as um, as Sting because the bl- the blue would have been on my eye because I would have probably been beaten up by looking like a dork for having my Sting trainers um, <laughs> with the scorpions on the leaving soul. scorpions on the sand. <laughs> yeah, so that that would have that would have formed the blue eye and the rest would have been the red lipstick on on the, on the <laughs> other cheek, forming the kind of great American bash colours. So there you go. There's some there's oh. some there's some cringeworthy trivia for you guys. <laughs> fantastic absolutely brilliant bradley thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join us it has been so much fun if people want to get a hold of you on um social media how can they find you yeah so they can find me on twitter via insane brad craig but they can also contact me through either facebook or even through the facebook page of the pro wrestling hall of fame for scotland so always happy to 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 talk to people about pro wrestling history or just pro wrestling nostalgia anything like that so get in touch guys i do want to apologize to both yourself and liam dean because i feel like i've inflicted the worst choice of pay-per-view that i could possibly actually no second worst great american bash 1991 great american bash 1992 (laughs) would be you know second worst so I want to apologize, but I want to thank you guys for making this a fun experience because it's not often that you can have fun whilst watching the Great American. <laughs> well, you know, we we uh, 
sometimes the bad ones are more fun to talk about than the good ones. And and hey, we've had to sit through Halloween Havoc '92, so don't that's worry right. about inflicting this on us. It's, it's <laughs> been a character building experience. That's how you describe uh, yes, it. Yes, that's the character building. I like it definitely. Okay, folks, you can um, find us on Twitter at because wcw or on facebook.com forward slash because wcw we will have another episode hitting very soon um most likely a nitro watch along um and uh, we will be uh, teeing up a few more guests for future weeks and months as we continue the golden age of podcasting but on behalf of liam hat this is me the twisted genius saying thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to download this and all of our episodes and we'll see you ringside